Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is hell, and what we will be discussing with today's guest is definitely a dissenting opinion, especially among those on the right. But not only those on the right, it's likely a dissenting opinion among liberals, too. However, if you are a conservative, a Republican, a Fox News viewer, a reactionary, or even a right-wing extremist, you probably understand the relationship between guns and immigration as illegal weapons flooding into the United States brought by illegal immigrants from across the U.S.-Mexico border. But as a new book coming out next month will show, it's actually U.S. guns flowing in the opposite direction, fueling the deadly violence of Mexico's drug war. Or maybe someone with strong anti-immigrant feelings believes fentanyl is the real danger posed by undocumented immigrants. But that myth has also been busted, as most fentanyl uh, that is being smuggled into the United States is being brought by white people through legal ports of entry. Maybe you have been led to believe that immigrants represent an increase in crime within the United States. Yet again, evidence shows that's false too, as white U.S. citizens are far more likely to engage in crime than any immigrant. But, as I was saying earlier, in the U.S. today, you don't have to be a conservative, a Republican, a Fox News viewer, a reactionary, or even a right-wing extremist to believe immigration is somehow frightening and should be a crime if not done properly and through what are considered the correct channels. It's that right-wing framing of illegals that has even liberals and Democrats being duped into perceiving a vastly exaggerated danger that does not exist in reality. The everyday use of that term, that framing of immigrants as human beings who are somehow illegal by members of both parties as well as the media is why so many critics of U.S. immigration policy have noted the similarities in policy between the Obama, Trump, and Biden administrations, although they varied sometimes in their rhetoric. The other problem, which we will be discussing today, is that many on the right have found a way to do something about the immigration issue, an issue that to them seems completely out of their control, and neither political party can do anything to solve. And what they've determined they can do is get a gun and join armed U.S. anti-immigrant groups at the border. Guns, it turns out, have a direct link to anti-immigrant beliefs in the United States. Not that anyone was noticing. In fact, guns are integral to the anti-immigrant movement, which gives their members a feeling of agency that they actually can do something about an issue that is far too important to them, blaming immigrants for every challenge they are facing in their own lives. For them, the world is no longer completely out of their control when they have a gun in their hand, especially while hanging out with others who 
are also filled with happiness from their warm guns. In a few minutes, we will be talking with someone who has gone inside those movements for well over a decade, who can describe that relationship between being anti-immigrant and pro-gun. Our guest today is sociologist M&A Fidan Elchiolu, who posted the Oxford Academic Journal article, Armed Citizens on the Border, How Guns Fuel Anti-Immigration Politics in America. Fidan is Assistant Professor of Sociology at the University of Toronto. Her work examines everyday political behavior under conditions of extreme inequality. She is also author of Divided by the Wall, Progressive and Conservative Immigration Policies at the U.S.-Mexico Border. Divided by the Wall was a 2020 C. Wright Mills Award finalist, one of the most prestigious awards for writing in sociology. It was also an honorable mention, uh, got an honorable mention for the 2022 Thomas and Zenyeki, I believe, I don't know, Best Book Award. Fidan studies how the U.S.-Mexico border, where migrants cross, has become a popular site for ordinary Americans to engage in emotionally draining, physically arduous, and often ineffective forms of collective action. You can find out more about Fidan at FidanElchiolu.com. You can follow her on X at FidanElchiolu. That's F-I-D-A-N-E-L-C-I-O-G-L-U. I am your Bitter Blind Broke Gaptooth radio show, live streaming, podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Rebecca Reidenauer. First, what was the music that you were playing before we went on air? That was Violeta para Volver a la 17. Look at you. That was beautiful. That was beautiful music. Oh. So do you speak Spanish? Uh, un poquito, sí. Yeah. yeah. I even less than that. <laughs> and I studied it for three years. Uh, my The best thing I ever did in a uh, Spanish class was I did a lecture on uh, Velasquez's Las Meninas, mm-hmm. the painting. And uh, the teacher told me, he was like, I was going to give you an A, but uh, have you ever taken a French class in your life? And I said, yeah, when I was like in ninth grade. And he said, well, because one of your sentences was completely in French. <laughs> I didn't even notice. So anything new in your world? Uh, just uh, I saw a flower in bloom. Get out of here. Yeah. It was that the early snowdrops have bloomed. So is that frightening to you? No, no. <laughs> I, 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 well, I stopped in my tracks and I bent down and, and, and touched it. <laughs> are you real? Yeah, yeah. And I saw the bun- the bunnies are out, so things no, are really? happening. Yeah. No, that's awesome. I there. love when I see bunnies around. <laughs> so right now I'm sitting in our studio above a bar in Chicago's uh, far north side, West Ridge neighborhood, which is one of the most safe neighborhoods in the city. It's also, it's not the safest, but it's one of the most safe neighborhoods in the city. It's also the most diverse neighborhood in the city and has the most diverse census tract in the country. It is a gateway neighborhood or a port of entry for immigrants from all over the world. And it's very, very welcoming with many refugee and immigrant organization offices and facilities to help those who have recently arrived. Not all, I mean, we got organizations here for Rohingya, for Uyghur, for people from from Afghanistan, Iraq, Iran, all over the world. They all have many of their organizations, refugee and immigrant organizations here in our neighborhood. Not all neighborhoods around us are as welcoming, but because the area is so diverse, everyone seems welcome here. I recently spoke with a store owner who told me that 2023 was the year of the armed robbery for businesses like his. I also spoke with a business owner who said that muggings 
are back. On the street armed robberies, something they had not seen since the 1970s. And I don't think it's a word I've heard since the 1980s. But again, this is still a very safe neighborhood police district. Sadly, however, in the last few days, things have gotten a little dicey as there have been several robberies where a car pulls up on an unsuspecting person or persons. The car's occupants pile out, often with guns, and they jump their target or targets, often violently, and take their wallets and phones. This kind of crime was happening in far more wealthy neighborhoods during late night or early morning hours, but the police cracked down because, well, they are they were happening in far more wealthy neighborhoods. And when crime happens there, the local news media covers those incidents because in their view, that's not where crime is supposed to happen, as if it is supposed to happen anywhere. But now it's happening here, and the Chicago Police Department has issued a community warning for West Ridge as well as nearby Edgewater and North Center, which is a bit farther south, but uh, far nicer than the, uh, the previous two neighborhoods I mentioned, West Ridge and Edgewater. So if you do live in any of those neighborhoods, please be aware of your surroundings. Do not walk down the street staring at your phone. Do not sit in a parked car for extended periods of time. And although many of these crimes are happening during the daytime, it's probably best not to be out on the streets stumbling drunk during early morning hours, as I sometimes am. With that community alert in mind, Becca, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is from Hugh, who posted on our Discord community page. What are you bringing to to the This Is Hell bake sale? I didn't. I didn't know we were having a This Is Hell bake sale. I had no idea we were having one. I'm looking forward to having one. Maybe we should do one of those during an anniversary party. That might be really amazing. But knowing our listeners, who knows what the ingredients will be. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins their choice of whatever This Is Hell swag they want. You can check out all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. When I was being interviewed by our affiliate in uh, Winnipeg, CKUW, by their programming director, uh... Scott Price, he pronounced it as a Manitoban, as a Winnipegger, as a Canadian. Schwag. I always say swag. Which is it, Becca? I'm going to have to say schwag. I think so, too. <laughs> I always say swag. I don't know why. It's, driving, it's written right here as schwag, too. Leave your answer at our Facebook page or message it to us via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio or at our Facebook group page. Welcome to the hellhole. And if you are not a member, you should join or you can tweet us, tweet at it, your answer at us at X at This Is Hell Radio. Or you can post it in our Discord community or on our Patreon page. If you are a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash This Is Hell. Patreon patrons, actually, uh, they get their first crack at the question from hell every week as we share it during the weekly exclusive Patreon podcast, which this week and next week goes live on Friday morning at 10 a.m. Central Standard Time here in Chicago. Again, just like last week, this week, and next week, we are doing live shows Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday with the Patreon podcast on Fridays. Actually, this uh, Friday's Patreon podcast probably isn't going to be going live until around noon. So just so you know. Coming up, the rarely researched relationship between pro-gun and anti-immigrant politics. Becca will share your answers to this week's question from hell as posted at our Welcome to the Hell Hall Facebook group page. Jeff Dorchin will deliver a moment of truth. Becca, what's Jeff talking about this week? Jeff shreds a hawkish Atlantic article to feather his dove nest. 
Yes, that's a very scary article. And Becca will also tell us who will be our final guest on this week's show. The U.S. ambassador to the U.N. said yesterday that they voted against the ceasefire in Gaza because they were looking for, quote, a final solution. That's something to think about. Live from late capitalism where property has more rights than people, this is hell and likely there is nowhere that's more obvious that's more obvious that property has more rights than people than borders where goods and capital can freely flow back and forth but not humans that's a different story somehow we've created a world where money has more freedom than well you know us people humans earthlings and in that screwed up world where people feel there's nothing they can do, some have found there is something they can do, at least about what they fear when it comes to immigration, and that is grab a gun and run for the border. Here to help us understand the armed white folks playing border patrol at the U.S.-Mexico border, we are very happy to have as our guest sociologist M.N.A. Fidan Elshiolu, who posted the Oxford Academic Journal article, Armed Citizens on the Border, How Guns Fuel Anti-Immigration Politics in America. She's also the author of the book, Divided by the Wall, Progressive and Conservative Immigration Politics at the U.S.-Mexico Border. Welcome to This Is Hell, Fidan. Thank you for having me, Chuck. Thank you so much for being on the show. This is absolutely fascinating, and I love when I read things that not only dispel myths that we may have, but myths that we may unintentionally believe, stereotypes that we may have that we don't even recognize our stereotypes. You start by writing to make a nation on stolen land using enslaved labor. The early American state relied on gun and immigration policy to create a well-armed white settler population. Is the origin, the root cause of our immigration policy and our gun policy, both of which are hotly contested right now, the U.S. history of slavery? Are both those policies still contested because the U.S. to some degree has not come to terms with that slavery? And is that even possible? How can we come to terms with slavery that seems to be at the root cause of the gun and immigration issues? That's a really big question. I know, I was doing the inverted pyramid thing, right? You do the big question at the beginning and then you get more specific. You're right. Um, no, it's a it's a great question. And I, you know, it's not that I have the ultimate answer by any stretch, but you know, I, I think that when we're sometimes it's important to kind of take a step back and um, you know, think about things historically, right? And I feel like you know, the tendency is to sort of say the people who participated in January 6th are, you know, these radical crazies, right, who sort of exist on the margins of society. And my whole claim is that actually, right, they're intuiting something about America that maybe the rest of us have forgotten, which is that this is a settler colonial society that was, as you said, founded, um, you know, uh, uh, on stolen land, right? Stolen from the indigenous folks who were here long before the 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 first um, the first settlers arrived, and um, you know, and and were able to develop the country using ens enslaved labor, right? Um, and doing that required 
first of all, bringing a different population in, right, the white settlers. And then, of course, it required a lot of violence that a fledgling state, right, the early state, um, was not able to do on its own. And so um, these early settlers uh, were actually mandated to be armed. Um, so, you know, every household had to have, you know, guns, a, a certain number of guns or whatever, uh, in order to uh, fight the enemies of civilization, the so-called enemies of civilization. Um, and, you know, we might say, okay, well, this was a long time ago, but as you said, I don't think we've sort of come to terms with uh, this uh, history. I mean, we're the U.S. is still a settler colonial society. It hasn't really um, done anything to to kind of um, reconcile or provide um, um, it, it, to to kind of uh, deal with this history in a meaningful and substantive way. You know, we haven't, um, and so so. Part of what I'm trying to say is that, you know, there's something about the U.S. and the way it was founded um, that might suggest to us that this kind of relationship between, um, you know, arming, especially white citizens um, and sort of uh, really uh, encouraging that politics um, and that culture, there might be a relationship between that and um, restrictive immigration policy, especially restrictive immigration policy against uh, racialized people. You mentioned January 6th, and towards the end of your paper, you write that under Donald Trump's presidency, armed right-wing protests became common occurrences. They culminated in the January 6th, 2021 insurrection at the U.S. Capitol, during which three-quarters of the insurrectionists believe that elected leaders were orchestrating white demographic decline through expansive immigration policy. However, to attribute the insurrection exclusively to Trump-era politics would be short-sighted. Armed musters benefited from years of beta testing long before uh, Trump took office. Gun-toting American civilians had been assembling to detain migrants at the U.S.-Mexico border since the 1990s. The desire to restrict immigration through armed civilian intervention is not a product of unhinged thinking among fringe groups. Rather, it is the American settler colonial uh, legacy that the insurrectionists intuited and that future research must take seriously. So was January 6th the result of those who felt disenfranchised now repeating the regrettable actions of America's earliest settlers? Does the anti-immigrant immigration crowd believe that settler colonialism was not only justified, but needs to always be implemented and reinforced to keep the country strong? I mean, you know, I, I don't think that they're sort of explicitly articulating it that way to themselves, right? Um, I don't think settler colonial as a term even comes up in everyday discourse, right? Um, but, uh, uh, you know, but there is something familiar about that legacy, right? That, that I'm saying could be behind this kind of politics, right? That the people uh, should have a right to, um, and, you know, by people, we mean white Americans and especially white American men should have a right to 
uh, you know, uh, certain things, right, that maybe other groups are not entitled to, including the ability to overthrow a government that they feel is not representing their interests, right? Um, if it was, you know, another group, then it's considered crime, right, or it's considered terrorism. But in this case, it's considered, you know, kind of, um, you know, the American patriotism or performance of American patriotism. Um, and as for the white demographic decline, I mean, it's kind of jarring, isn't it, to read that? Because I, I was actually, you know, I mean, it's jarring and it's not jarring because on the one hand, it's kind of sort of not surprising, but then, um, you know, researchers have gone in and tried to kind of you know, determine what were the political orientations of like specifically what are the beliefs of these folks who were involved in um, the insurrection. And, you know, so many of them, right, more than half of them really are worried and anxious about America becoming, an, you know, a non-white country, <laughs> essentially. Um, so, yeah, so it's... Uh, it's uh it's it's kind of really reinforces this idea that you know when we talk about white supremacy we're not talking about again these ex like necessarily these extremist groups um but that there is this widespread notion right uh that you know that that under, you know that we will under all circumstances or take any means possible to maintain um, the white supremacy of the society, right? Um, so that's sort of, uh, again, you know, this is something that other researchers need to look more deeply into. But, and and this article really is an effort to kind of push people to, to think about the relationships um, between these things, right? Settler colonialism and contemporary immigration policy. Um, you know, gun politics and gun culture and um, immigration politics, right? Um, unfortunately, uh, uh, you know, there hasn't been sort of a systematic effort to link these topics, um, you know, uh, among people who, you know, it's, it's sort of like these topics are kind of researched in silos and these folks are not talking to each other. So this article is really my effort to say, hey, like, guys, we need to to pay attention to these linkages. That's really interesting. The uh, being uh, researched in silos, that kind of makes sense, because my question was going to be, why do you think these uh, that relationship has been ignored? But I mean, if they're if it's all being siloed like that and everything, you know, nothing has a relationship to anything else and there is no real you know, bigger context, it makes sense that those things have not been linked together, which is a shame that that's the way that research happens in this country. But you write right out and everywhere. You also write that contemporary American gun culture bolsters anti-immigrant organizations through two mechanisms. First, gun shows and shooting ranges are important sites of recruitment among anti-immigrant groups. How open is the anti-immigrant nature of gun shows or shooting ranges for that matter? Is it all dog whistles and a wink or is the anti-immigrant rhetoric out in the open? Well, um, so when I was doing research field work in Arizona, um, I would drop in on these gun shows, um, you know, and I didn't do it again. I didn't do it systematically, but I, I would go there when the organization that I was studying, which is this group that I call the soldiers, they're an anti-immigrant group. 
um, who were sort of interested in, you know, helping Border Patrol apprehend border crossers, um, you know, one of the main places that they would try to recruit new members were at these local gun shows. And in Arizona, this is a pretty frequent occurrence. Um, if it almost feels like, you know, every month there's at least one or two gun shows going on and they're really massive affairs. Um, so for a fairly nominal uh, amount of money, you can set up a booth right in the in with these spaces and, um, you know, and and use it to, you know, whether it's to sell guns or sell jewelry or whatever. Jewelry is actually a big thing that's sold at gun shows, oddly enough. Um, but you also sell, you know, you can also sell ideas, right? Like, and so they would set up these booths and they would have these, um, for example, like a computer or something that would be playing images that they captured um, using these cameras that they've stationed overlooking what suspected migrant trails at the US-Mexico border. And the idea was, look, this is really happening. Um, you know, there's so many people who are crossing the border illegally, uh, and uh, here you are buying a gun, you know, what's a good way to kind of, you know, um, use that gun and engage in something patriotic? Well, why don't you join our group, right? And so they would be, you know, handing out pamphlets and, and, and so forth. Um, so yeah, so gun shows were definitely much more effective uh, recruitment places than say, for example, um, tea party rallies, which is kind of interesting actually when you think about it. So there was uh, at about the time that I was doing this research initially, the tea party um, was kind of mobilizing um, and you know they had their tax day rallies, et cetera. Um, and they would, you know, they would also um, set up the the soldiers would also set up these uh, these informational booths at the um, at these rallies, and they were not as successful, and they kind of felt marginalized for uh, for whatever reason. And you know, they went back to just um, you know trying to recruit new members at gun shows. So that was kind of interesting that really guns. Um, created this institutional space that they felt familiar and 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 that felt familiar to them and that felt like a, a good place to recruit not just new members but members who stayed on for a long period of time um so these are like you know core members or people who turned out to become core members i got to know is the jewelry quality is it all is it all turquoise it is all turquoise knew it <laughs> knew it it is it's like beautiful turquoise jewelry you know um a lot of it actually made by uh indigenous groups of that area the tohono autumn the the navajo etc I knew it was going to be ironically <laughs> right now talk about irony jeez so um uh i'm sorry I lost my... does the mere handling of firearms not even the purchase or acquisition of guns does that give those who have anti-immigrant sentiments a sense of agency and empowerment that they can do something about a policy 
they do not support. And do you think firearms has that same effect no matter the political beliefs of those who are otherwise disenchanted? Because past guests on our show who are anarchists politically have posted pictures of a new trove of guns next to a new trove of books on anarchist philosophy. So do you think that just having a gun in your hand gives you a sense of empowerment, gives an American a sense of empowerment no matter what their political beliefs are? Or do you think this is very much, you know, a right-wing feeling? I mean, again, this is an excellent question, and it's an empirical question, right? Because I don't think we should essentialize the political relationship between gun ownership and, um, you know, and what people's views are on things like immigration, for instance, or on, you know, uh, property and, um, you know, distribution of wealth, right? Um, and in fact, um, you know, what's so interesting is that gun um, purchases, and this is something I discuss at the very end of the article, um, skyrocketed uh, during the pandemic. Um, so clearly, you know, this is a time when people are feeling really insecure. And th these are first time gun owners. So people who've never owned a gun, don't know much about guns, are going out and buying guns. Um, and demographically, it was very interesting because these are a lot of people of color and women who traditionally vote Democratic, who sort of identify as liberal, who, you know, might have more pro-immigrant or immigrant rights kind of um, views, right? Um, and so then the question is, okay, now that you have a gun, is this going to move you to the right? Or is it actually going to change the whole culture around guns, right? Where you become gun, if gun ownership is actually more demographically inclusive, right? Then, then we can't know necessarily if it's um, it's it's always going to be associated with right wing politics, um, and uh, you know, and I'm thinking back also to this really interesting rally that happened in. Um, in Virginia. This was, again, around the time of COVID. I think it was like January 2020. So it was like before all the lockdowns and things happened, um, where there was this pro-gun rally in Richmond in front of the Virginia um, Capitol building. And the, you know, the folks came together in order to protest gun regulation that was introduced by like the Democratic law lawmakers. And, you know, at this rally, we had the usual suspects. We had these co conservative pro-gun, um, you know, uh, advocates, but there were also a lot of Antifa folks, right, who were critical um, of introducing um, gun regulations that would end up dis disproportionately criminalizing and punishing poor people or people of color and leftists. So, you know, it's a... Um, you know, it's an interesting kind of, uh, uh, you know, group of people who come together, um, you know, uh, basically asking for the same thing, but who have extremely different sort of political orientations, right? And, and also that there, you know, uh, there is sort of um, underlying criticism of the police for the right. It's sort of like the police are not there enough. Right. Um, there, you know, there's all kinds of, uh, you know, uh, quirky slogans on the right about how, you know, 
you know, if you are an emergency, don't call the police because they're not going to, and the assumption is they're not going to show up or they're going to show up way too late. Right. Um, but on the left, it's sort of like the police are getting increasingly militarized. Right. Um, they're really, really scary. And basically like this arming civilians is a way to restore some balance of power. Um, so, you know, very different politics, but coming together at this rally, um, to protest basically the same thing, uh, which is gun regulations, right? So, um, you know, this question of, you know, does gun ownership necessarily push you in this direction? I think, again, it's an open empirical question. In the case of, uh, of, of the, the, you know, um, in in the case that I study, it really did, right? So people not only got recruited into this organization, but then, um, you know, felt like, you know, th th their interest was sustained through gun culture, right? So their interest in immigration politics and in, in going out into the desert, searching for undocumented border crossers was sustained through gun culture and the camaraderie that was created with uh, through gun culture. You write that a burgeoning sociology of guns has demonstrated how Americans, especially white men experiencing social, economic and physical insecurity, celebrate armed self-defense as a form of citizenship while attributing their insecurity to the presence of racialized others, especially immigrants. Insecurity is caused by others, and to address that economic insecurity, they arm themselves. But a gun is not going to protect you against that economic insecurity, which is caused by the increasing precari precariousness of our economy and the weakening of labor organizi organizing to uh, combat that precarity. Yet those who feel insecure are opposed to recognizing, let alone addressing, the inequality that makes them insecure. And they oppose unions that could provide yeah. employment security. So are insecure people getting guns to feel secure because of an unwillingness to hold capitalism responsible for their conditions? Are they buying guns because to them capitalism is above not only criticism, but analysis? Yeah, absolutely. And with declining unionization, right, with the flight of manufacturing, like where, how do you how do you fight capitalism, right? It used to be traditionally on the shop floor, right? You could organize, um, you know, you could organize a strike. You could um, really force the capital's hand on a number of issues, not just, you know, making working conditions better, but, but even more than that. But now it's sort of like, how do you fight capitalism, right? Um, so this is just this as you said, it's it's a way to regain mastery and control, uh, to feel relevant, right? Um, and you know, uh, uh, the there's some excellent studies um, among gun scholars, and I I don't call myself a gun scholar, so um, you know, and I'm talking about Jennifer Carlson um, and um, and others who have sort of shown how you know. Uh, uh, you know, white men who, um, you know, traditionally may have drawn their sense of agency and mastery, um, you know, as being the the breadwinner, right? The family breadwinner. Now they're sort of caught up in this precarious um, economy, right? 
uh, where there's, um, you know, there there's more contingent or informal labor, uh, informal jobs than than you know those kind of formal, well-paying, unionized jobs that maybe of an earlier era. Um, so then, how do you kind of maintain your status as a good man? Well, you're the protector of your family. You buy a gun. And you say, you know, if something happens to my family, I'm ready for it, right? Um, so there's definitely, um, you know, masculinity norms are very much caught up in sort of um, bolstering this kind of um, gun ownership, right? So, so the, the guns are imbued with meaning, right? Guns are not just tools right but that that we attribute meanings to them um and uh they can really um you know make you feel a certain way about yourself and it can make you feel a certain way about other people right and we've had jennifer on the show before as well as a lot of the people who you cite in your paper including roxanne dunbar ortiz you oh, mentioned wow. you mentioned to feel relevant uh is is that why you think it attracts so many veterans and maybe even former law enforcement officials, yeah. but especially veterans, because their life was so important. Uh, their their friends depended on them for their very survival. You get a camaraderie, I understand, right. in the military that you cannot get anywhere else. Very few places exactly. else. Maybe, you know, on a sports team or maybe, but that's not even close. So is this then... Uh, is that why veterans are so attracted to being in these organizations like the soldiers? Because they have lost relevance when they came home. Absolutely. I think there is, um, you know, this is a question of groups that are feeling increasingly um, irrelevant in society, right? Um, so we also have, um, you know, another sociologist, Jennifer Johnson, who actually talks about why elderly women are getting involved in border control activism. You know, her study is set in California and at the California-Mexico border. And, uh, you know, it's a similar story of these elderly women feeling like alienated from their families, alienated from, um, you know, from society at large and feeling like this is a way to kind of feel relevant, right? Um, and of course, aging veterans, right? That's a big thing. And as you said, right, the military, I mean, the military as an institution is really unique um, because, uh, you know, it is one of those spaces where, um, you can build that kind of masculine camaraderie. Um, maybe once upon a time, right? Uh, that was the shop floor, right? Um, but again, you know, with the flight of manufacturing um, jobs, et cetera, you don't have that. Or unions, right? Unions were very much a place where you build friendships, especially, you know, between men, right? Um, and there's this, you know, uh, you know, uh, sense of purpose or shared sense of purpose, et cetera. Um, and so, you know, there's nothing to kind of replace those things except maybe, um, uh, through this kind of armed, um, activism at the border, right? Where these folks who otherwise, you know, might not have a lot of friends or might not have a lot of male friends can suddenly find themselves among like-minded 
people, right? Um, and people with similar kind of lived experiences. Um, so the friendships that come out of this activism are actually very strong, you know, and that's what, you know, makes it really sad that, you know, that racism and nativism is becoming the basis of friendships, right? Of, um, you know, feeling like you belong, right? I mean, that's, that's quite sad, actually. Um, you know, it, it signals to me that something is very, very wrong with um with the world we live in right yeah and the other thing that i was thinking about during your response was how poor care for the elderly and veterans right. can lead to people going to the border and arming themselves to stop immigrants because that way they have at least some sort of agency cuts to social services for elderly and the veterans right. are leading to this kind of desperate need for camaraderie that leads to more nativism and racism. It's just, it's really, really frightening. Thanks a lot for scaring me. So our guest today is sociologist M.N.A. Fadan Elshiolu, who posted the uh, Oxford Academic Journal article, Armed Citizens on the Border, How Guns Fuel Anti-Immigration Politics in America. She's also the author of Divided by the Wall, Progressive and Conservative Immigration Politics at the U.S.-Mexico Border, which is an award-winning book, and you should check that out as well. You mentioned uh, in your last response uh, this, uh, you know, norms of masculinity. You write that armed protection became a symbolically loaded way for gun owners to negotiate the, quote, impossible norms of masculinity and personal responsibility. What makes them impossible and why are they made impossible yeah again this is more you know a, a question that professor carlson um is sort of better uh situated to answer but from reading her books what i understand is you know the, again this breadwinner right um so um, uh, these impossible norms is uh specifically um hearkening back to this idea of you know, a good man is someone who uh, can go out, um, you know, work a job, right, and bring home enough money to support the entire family without having to rely on, again, it's a very heterosexual image, obviously, uh, without having to rely on his wife to also be working, right? And not only that, but... <clears throat> And they have enough income, right, to purchase a home, to purchase a car, and to really kind of experience some upward mobility, right? Um, so, you know, live sort of a quintessential, what we would imagine a, a middle-class lifestyle. Um, that's no longer possible uh, for, uh, you know, especially sort of given the extreme amounts of not only income inequality, but wealth inequality that just gets worse with every generation. Um, so it's impossible. It's an impossible ideal to live up to. Um, and so a way to kind of make up for it is, again, you know, what is something that I can do vis-a-vis -vis my family um, well, I can protect them, right? I can protect them by going out and purchasing a gun. Um, and so we're seeing a lot of that kind of explanation, right, uh, for why people are uh, purchasing guns. Um, it, it's for the the purpose of self-protection or protecting, um, you know, uh, my family or protecting good people, right? Um, so it's also this idea of like, if I'm in a diner, 
someone comes in shooting up the place, well, I can, you know, I can deal with that situation and maybe save all the other people who are at the diner, um, you know, the innocent sort of bystanders. You write that drawing on 20 months of ethnographic field work from 2011 to 2012 and then again in 2017 with a Minutemen-like anti-immigrant group at the Arizona-Mexico border. Your article shows how guns assuage these right-wing activists' despair about their prospects of creating a more fortified America. So would a truly fortified wall, in your opinion, and only an impassable fortification at the U.S.-Mexico border, border give them a sense of security? Do you think if they got what they want, they would feel secure? Or is the goal of their political leadership to always put them in a state of fear because only when frightened can they manip be manipulated to support some of their positions? Do you think if they actually got the wall they wanted, would they? is, that, is there a wall that's going to be big enough to make them feel secure? No, I, I don't think so. Right. And, you know, that's, that's, that's the, you know, that's the catch 22 here, I guess. Right. Um, they don't think so. Uh, they always feel like there is, you know, it's interesting because, you know, on the one hand, they're very pro-law enforcement, right? They feel like, okay, this law enforcement, we have to go out and help Border Patrol do these things. They're doing their best, but they clearly don't have enough boots on the ground to catch everyone who's coming through, right? But on the other hand, there's also a lot of critique of the state um, feeling like, you know, when the state is doing it, and this is, you know, this is not... Um, uh, you know, uh, uncommon on the right, that the, that they're going to do it badly, right? Um, and so, you know, a government-made wall, um, you know, will always have its holes, so to speak. Um, so no, they're they're not sort of satisfied with, um, you know, with with you know a, a you know a wall being built. It's also physically impossible, right, given the kind of terrain that we're talking about for walls, for a wall to be built, you know. Um, and this is also something that's interestingly recognized by these activists, because they spend a lot of time in these areas, and they see the terrain, and they see the kind of mechanical impossibility of building a wall. So the wall is a nice rallying cry, for more immigration enforcement, um, and also justifies their um, their presence on the border, but um, but they're also very much aware about the sort of engineering and logistical problems of trying to erect a wall uh, across this you know very very large uh, you know across this continent basically right. You also point out that as border vigilantism hit the news, scholars began critiquing the social science literature for unwittingly reinforcing, rather than problematizing, the state's understandings of migration. According to Nicholas de Genova, even research that was politically sympathetic to immigrant struggles either downplayed or ignored the role of law in illegalizing migration. And by ignoring law, de Genova maintained extent uh, scholarship gave the impression that illegality was a trans-historical fixture. 
He argued that instead, migrant illegality was something that was actively constructed through immigration law. A new stream of scholarship thus began documenting the ways that immigration law reified illegality. The argument then would be that the law made immigration a crime, but that's what laws do, determine what is a crime and constrain it. However, a crime is supposed to be something that is not only illegal, but is perceived as shameful, wrong, even evil. Is immigration shameful, wrong, or evil? Is the labeling of immigration as a crime and immigrants as criminals an injustice? Is it unfair and immoral, and does it label all immigrants as shameful, wrong, and evil? Yeah, and I I think, you know, and it's also highly racialized, right? So even if you yourself are not necessarily an immigrant, if you're a racialized person, there's always some kind of suspicion around your um, legal status. So it perpetuates that kind of racism um, and that kind of suspicion. Uh, so yeah, absolutely. The law does a lot of things, right? But what I'm trying to show in the article is that, you know, we shouldn't assume that just because there are these restrictive, um, you know, very hateful anti-immigrant um, laws on the books that people necessarily just kind of download those sentiments into their heads, right? Um, and in fact, my research suggests that people are very, um, you know, they can be very critical thinkers and they can, um, you know, and I'm not just talking about people on the left, but on the right too, um, where they, you know, they look at the law and they say, okay, this is happening, but, you know, like this is the reality that I'm living, right? Um, so one thing that's really interesting, for instance, is that if, so if it was the case that, you know, we have, um, you know, uh, laws that kind of brutalize people or that brutalize, um, I think, the uh, a rhetoric, uh, laws that perpetuate a rhetoric that brutalizes, um, you know, uh, not only immigrants, but the broader American public, right, by, by sort of perpetuating these really racist, hateful ideas, then we wouldn't have seen uh, the demise of the Minutemen in like 2006, 2007, but that's exactly what happened. Um, so right when border enforcement starts to get really militarized and really serious, we see the Minutemen kind of um, losing steam. Um, so, you know, so it doesn't, you know, just because a law exists doesn't necessarily automatically lead to um, you know, a certain kind of mobilization. Mobilization requires its own um, kind of energy and and it's hard, you know? I mean, talk to organizers, right? Just because, you know, we're seeing, um, you know, massive amounts of inequality, uh, et cetera, doesn't mean that people are moved to take action or to join a group that is gonna fight against this, right? Um, you know, so, uh, you know, we, we shouldn't assume that that, you know, laws that that are anti-immigrant laws are necessarily going to lead to grassroots uh, collective action, um, whether it's pro-immigration or anti-immigration. But it's something that needs to be kind of very much created on the ground. Um, and that's where the guns part comes in. Right. Because I 
I'm sort of making this argument that guns are kind of creating, gun culture is creating a very uh, convenient gateway to not only recruit people to this cause, but then keep them in this cause, right? Keep keep doing what they're doing. It takes a lot of time and effort. You know, we're talking about working class folks who are, um, you know, using their precious time off to drive to Arizona, right, for like two or three weeks at a time, um, using their own, guns are not cheap, right? Buying guns, buying all the accessories that go with guns, buying camouflage, you know, buying whatever night vision goggles or whatever they think they need when they're out in the desert. Um, you know, uh, gas is not cheap, right? Driving over, um, you know, and so how do you keep these people mobilized? How do you keep people coming back? You know, um, and I think it's that the guns that play sort of a central uh, role in that. Uh, and you write that some scholars have traced grassroots anti-immigrant activism to border militarization and immigration enforcement policies. In this view, the state's violent policies and rhetoric brutalize not only immigrants, but also the broader American public. So we ended last week by speaking with Jason Kang Brown, co-author of the Vera Institute of Justice report, People on Electronic Monitoring. We also yeah. uh, were joined by activist researcher and writer James Kilgore, who was paroled from prison in 2009. And that re uh, report states as that as argued by immigrant activists in a 2021 report, border communities are the test subjects for surveillance everywhere. Way back in 2008, historian Alfred McCoy explained to us how the use of drones in Iraq would soon be used against citizens back in the States. That whatever war technology is used abroad eventually comes back to haunt us here at home as we are seeing in these police fusion centers that have surveillance systems directed at local communities similar to the ones used to fight terrorists, essentially swapping out terrorists for community members. So is that what we are doing to immigrants, a dry run by Republicans or whoever is anti-immigrant of what they want the United States to be like in the future? Is their vision of the U.S. massive criminalization and intensified economic dependence upon a prison industrial complex as it appears the new far-right governor in Louisiana wants to do? Yeah, I mean, especially if it's very profitable, right? Um, there's there's a lot of money to be made uh, by bolstering border enforcement. And in fact, what we've seen is that private prison companies have really been um, key players in pushing um, legislation that would criminalize more and more bigger, bigger groups of immigrants, right? And by immigrants, I'm not just talking about undocumented people. I'm talking about people who just don't have American citizenship, so permanent residents as well, right? Uh, so if you're a permanent resident and years and years ago you had like uh, a small marijuana, um, you know, related violation, I don't know, you were caught smoking marijuana somewhere, that can come back to haunt you um, and uh, basically throw you into the whole um, immigrant um you know, criminal justice system, right? Um, and private prisons are, you know, what makes them money is having more people um, incarcerated, basically, right? So, of course, they're going to push for laws that, um, you know, are going to uh, uh, create more sort of 
um, you know, surveillance, not only at the border, but also looking to, um, you know, uh, create more immigration control within the country. So away from the border. Um, so yeah, absolutely. Uh, that, you know, the, the, I don't know if it's like, you know, a cabal of, you know, evil, uh, people, you know, sitting around in a smoking room who are sort of coming up with this vision, But yeah, when profit is involved, right, when uh, when capital is involved, um, you know, that's the direction that society tends to go, right, um, unless there is sort of a massive mobilization against it. Did the uh, extremist anti-immigrant groups that were at the border, do you think they had any impact on the culture within the border patrol? Did the soldiers make yeah. the border patrol more extreme or was the border patrol's extremism? reflected in the soldiers? This is a really interesting question, and I wish I had a more empirically founded answer for it. And in fact, you know, it's so funny because when I started this research, I, you know, was, um, uh, you know, interested in talking to grassroots groups, but I also wanted to talk to law enforcement, you know, and I, I was trying to access Border Patrol for a long time. And um, it was around that time that they also you know, made it harder for researchers and journalists to talk to like field agents, right? That they, you know, they, they would just kind of refer you to the PR office. And the official line at the time was, we don't need these civilians out here, right? Um, but then the Border Patrol Union was saying something very different. Um, and the Border Patrol Union became sort of a big kind of player maybe in later years, um, especially uh, right before Trump was elected and then um, after he was uh, inaugurated into office. But, you know, they were huge supporters of Trump. And, you know, one of the thing that, you know, and, and, and this whole idea that, you know, the border is chaos, right? And yes, we, not only do we need more government resources here, but maybe we do need American patriots at the border. So, um, you know, it's a it's a difficult question to answer because, um, you know, uh, it's sort of, um, yeah, it's it, it it kind of can go both ways. It's it, but I could say though, in the interactions that I saw between the soldiers and the border patrol, um, there was a fair amount of mutual respect. So, for example. Um, when the soldiers called the Border Patrol to say that they had apprehended someone, uh, Border Patrol would show up um, and they wouldn't chastise these folks for, you know, um, for, for uh, you know, trying to, for being out in the desert and trying to apprehend people. So, you know, there was no, like, not even a slap on the wrist for that, you know, um, be, you know, they were just like, okay, be careful, you know, and if something happens, call us. Um, and then they would build these relationships with the locally stationed agents. Um, so the soldiers would, um, so, you know, there, there was a fair amount of collaboration that maybe doesn't get sort of it's not like formal and it's not something that is publicly noted, but certainly those relationships were there, um, you know, uh, and for example, the soldiers, when I was 
um, you know, following them in 2017, they, if there was some type of fundraiser for the border patrol, they would show up, the soldiers would show up to the fundraiser and really sort of, you know, be there as supporters of border patrol. Even if they had a critique of the border patrol as an institution, they saw them as, you know, allies. Um, so, and I'm sure the border patrol noticed that, you know, these agents noticed that, that these guys are showing up to their fundraisers, um, et cetera. You uh, quote one of the uh, one of the soldiers' leaders, a guy by the name of Rick, who he tells you, uh, you know, um, he's aware of the soldiers' limited impact. You say that on the first meeting, he distinguished cartel smugglers from the coyotes or guides of an earlier era. He explained to you that they're called drug mules for a reason, able to withstand the scorching desert heat while carrying almost a hundred pounds of drugs and supplies. The cartel's men were friggin' animals who never gave up, Rick maintained. Now, this sounds very much like the dehumanization you hear of Gazans by the Israeli military leadership. How important is dehumanization of immigrants to these, uh, you know, right-wing patrols? Is dehumanization necessary in order to motivate those patrols, or is it just a contributing factor and that the guns are actually what's far more important? Yeah, no, they go hand in hand, right? Um, so the guns have to be there to protect you from something, right? And that something needs to be dehumanized. So absolutely, there was this constant work of dehumanization and it didn't come automatically. So what's interesting is, okay, Rick is the leader, right? And so I'll just tell you about one thing that, um, that I actually didn't end up writing about, but was really interesting to witness, where they apprehended two boys um, who, uh, you know, they had these backpacks on their back. They didn't have any drugs on them. Um, they were both from Central America. And by boys, I mean, they looked older than they were. I think one was 14 or 13, and the other one was like 15 or 16. Um, and Rick was, you know, constantly trying to uh, make them out to be older than they actually probably were. And then there was this kind of interesting interaction between Rick and um, another guy who I refer to as <laughs> trying to remember the name that I assigned him. Um, oh, a Tommy, who's uh, another sort of core member, but he's not a leader and who could speak Spanish, right? And so he's talking to these boys, he's looking through their bag, um, and, you know, he's not really convinced by Rick that these are just like really bad adult men who are up, to, you know, who are, you know, somehow hiding something, right? That that they actually have a cache of drugs somewhere um, and, uh, you know, and plan to go back and get it or something like that. And, you know, Rick, the entire time is like, I don't, you know, I'm very suspicious of them, blah, blah, blah. Like, how did they know to raise their hands as soon as we approach them? Like, these are folks who are, or these are guys who are clearly familiar with law enforcement because they're criminal types and things like that. So anyways, what I'm trying to say is that this dehumanization actually needs to be reproduced, right? And that it's not automatic. 
Um, and sometimes it's actually kind of absurd because what it looks like is you're pointing a gun at a third. And in fact, you are pointing a gun at a 13 year old boy, you know, or a 15 year old boy, you know, who poses absolutely no danger. Um, so yeah, I mean, uh, you know, uh, the, the dehumanization absolutely is something, um, that needs to be, uh, that happens, but doesn't happen automatically and kind of, um, was a process that I saw kind of unfolding before my eyes. Just two more questions for you. You write that future studies should inquire about other spaces where immigration politics gets tangled up with gun culture, policy, and activism. Are guns significant for nativist organizations in places other than the U.S.-Mexico border? Do guns also contribute to the marginalization of other racialized groups? For instance, scholars increasingly identify the salience of Islamophobia in shaping the experiences of Muslim and Muslim-seeming Americans in the United States. To what extent and in what ways do guns reinforce and sustain Islamophobic ideas and practices among Americans, you ask? So for me, I would feel far less safe in my house with a gun because I drink. I'm uh, not too crazy about my life. I'm, I, I, I just view a gun in my house as a suicide machine. Do guns create and further even magnify fear among those who are purchasing them for security. Yeah, ironically, that may be the case, you know, um, especially if guns also serve as a gateway to political ideas beyond just the gun debate, right? Which is what I'm trying to kind of convey in this article is that they can be, so people who know nothing about immigration, who couldn't have cared less about immigration, who then end up getting recruited at a shooting range or gun show to be part of this organization. They show up, they feel the camaraderie, they feel like it's something you know there, there's this like whole indoctrination that happens right and then um yeah certainly after that they might start to notice things right that makes them fearful that makes them feel like immigrants are a danger to them whereas maybe before they didn't as much right so yeah i think um it can certainly uh, perpetuate fear. It, it uh, uh, you know, it kind of obscures the real problems, the real social problems, um, despite making feel maybe making people feel agentic and feel like they belong and feel like they have a group, right? Um, so yeah, absolutely, uh, it can be. Uh, uh, ironically, as you said, you know. Uh, something that ends up uh, reinforcing a sense of insecurity rather than mitigating it. We have been speaking with sociologist Emine Fadan El Elchiolu, who posted the uh, Oxford Ac Academic Journal article, Armed Citizens on the Border, How Guns Fuel Anti-Immigration Politics in America. She's also the author of Divided by the Wall, Progressive and Conservative Im Immigration Politics at the U.S.-Mexico Border. Find out more about her at her website, uh, Fidan Elshiolu, and you can follow her on X at Fidan Elshiolu. You write, first of all, 
our final question that we ask everybody is what we call the question from hell. It's the question we may hate to ask, and man, am I going to hate asking this question. You may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. I think that they're going to love your response. You write that historically the Second Amendment enshrined the white supremacist exigencies of settler colonial life in order to appropriate indigenous lands and control enslaved Africans. The early colonies and later the fledgling American state required settler colonial households to be armed while making it compulsory for every white male, no matter their class, to participate in a militia or slave patrol. Were the militias that do have the right to be armed, as promised in the Second Amendment, were those militias anti-slave militias. Is that what the Second Amendment was talking about? The right for armed militias to conduct slave patrols. And is that what the Republicans want now, except you swap out slaves for those they believe to be immigrants? Are we on the verge of completely legal armed immigrant controls? Because it sounds like, you know, people have disputed the fact that the founders, the framers uh, wanted to have a Christian nation but it sure does sound like they wanted a white nation. So was that militia that they were protecting in the Second Amendment, was that militia slave patrols? Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. And I think, actually, your previous guest, uh, Roxanne, Roxanne uh, Dunbar-Ortiz, is probably a better position to answer it. And I think if I were to channel her um, you know, energy, I would say probably yes, you know, that there is uh, definitely a, a direct legacy of these slave patrols um, that are informing the current kind of, um, you know, uh, anti-immigrant uh, grassroots uh, border activism that we see um, in places like Arizona. Um, you know, again, you know, part of what it was, was the slave, the slave patrols, right, were about catching, um, you know, so-called fugitive slaves, right, and returning them to their owners, uh, with the understanding that the, you know, that, that the government couldn't really, you know, do it, right? And so this was something that basically got outsourced to, um, white free men, right? Um, and there's a lot of money to be made in it. Um, so, uh, and it wasn't, they weren't just catching slaves, by the way, they were also catching or moving around indigenous people. So the indigenous folks maybe who were getting moved around uh, may not have been enslaved, but they were certainly, um, you know, uh, forced to uh, be on certain uh, lands and they couldn't be on other lands, right? So, you know, uh, putting them on these reservations with, um, uh, you know, uh, the, the, on land that is very infertile and that that is, it's hard to grow things to survive, right? Um, moving them from their traditional territories and everything, militias were involved in those, in those things. So this forcible displacement of people or returning them into these, or, or or putting them in these kind of really dehumanized uh, uh, conditions was the 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 you know what the militia did right, and so if we think about it that way, um, you know uh, you know they're and they're considered the enemies of civilization right they're considered the the um, you know the, the 
yeah, the enemies of settlement, the enemies of civilization. So if we think about it that way, certainly there's a lot of resonance with what we're seeing today, right? Um, where, you know, there's this sense that immigration poses a threat to American civilization. Um, the government is not doing enough, and we need to do our part in trying to bolster um, enforcement, right, and gather these folks who don't belong um, and hand them over to the authorities, basically. And, you know, uh, law enforcement and capital is right there supporting them. So, yeah, I think uh, I think there is there is a lot of resonance between um between these, uh, you know, this historical kind of uh, moment and what we're seeing um, in the contemporary world. Fidan, thank you so much for being on the show today. We Our most recent interview with Roxanne is, uh, it's about 48 minutes long. I ask an opening question, and then I ask the question from hell because she then gave a 45-minute lecture, which was... <laughs> amazing it was absolutely amazing oh, i've often I've never heard her speak I've, okay. I've often thought about uh transcribing that and giving yeah. it to people in a written form just at, on its own because yeah. she didn't need me to ask any questions she was yeah. absolutely amazing so people can find that uh that interview at our website right now for free all you have to do is look up roxanne dunbar ortiz fadon thank you so much for being on the show and whenever you have something else coming out please get in contact uh with us because we'd Love to have you back on the show. Make sure you check out Fadon's book, Divided by the Wall, Progressive and Conservative Immigration Politics at the U.S.-Mexico Border. Thank you so much for being on our show today. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Okay. Oddly. How did that, how <laughs> did that become fun? Even though it was hell, right? Exactly. <laughs> Thank you so much, Fadon. You are listening to... God's favorite radio show. Prove me wrong. This is hell. If you learned or got a, at least a better understanding from Fidan of why far right gun lovers who love their guns more than they love human beings who are desperately trying to find a better life in the United States or, you know, trying to figure out what the hell is going on in the world. Show your appreciation by becoming a subscriber to our bonus Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell, where you can show your support for completely listener supported this is hell by visiting this is hell.com and clicking on support. Becca, please remind us what is this week's question from Ellen. Share with us how our listeners are responding at our Welcome to the Hell Hole Facebook group page, which now has over 850 members. This week's question from Hell is from our Discord page. And the question is, what are you bringing to This Is Hell Bake Sale? And on our Facebook page, which is the one I have pulled up, is... Okay. oh. And then it just refreshed on me. <laughs> I'm sorry. Live radio is better. Bumper stickers should be issued. <laughs> yeah. uh, we so I am I am currently scrolling down. Here we are. Uh, so we have from Nicole M a plate of delicious cornbread, but it's just ominously labeled yellow cake. <laughs> uh, uh, from Riley D says deep fried cicadas, some from brood nineteen, some from brood thirteen, tossed in a tangy buffalo glaze. Maybe a kale salad for the vegans. Oh, the kale salad sounds nice. <laughs> and from Cody K a ch a choice billionaire with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. Uh, there's a lot of references. 
reference to that film on your group. <laughs> and then Scott P says baked goods to pay from the de- for to pay for the deficit. Oatmeal cookies for fifty million. M- muffins for one billion. Lemon squares for five billion. <laughs> Delicious. And Allison H says cookies that have raisins in them, but that you but you think they're chocolate chips, and that's just traumatic. Yeah, that is. Uh, and Jesse S says microplastics. Oh, gross. <laughs> and Warren L says blood pudding of my enemies. <laughs> <laughs> I love blood pudding. Any more? Oh, that's all from the from the group. All right. So uh, as always, you can leave your answer at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash this is hell radio. Uh, and we will be sharing those after uh, we speak with Jeff Dorchin and he gives us the moment of truth. Uh, you can also go to our Facebook group page as we were just talking about. Welcome to the hellhole. You can post it on our uh, Discord community or on X at this is hell radio or if you're a subscriber. And we hope you are. You can give your answer to this week's question from hell at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash this is hell. Coming up, Jeff and the Moment of Truth will tell you who our final guest of the week will be. And uh, yeah, there you go. Keep in mind, a lot of the questions I asked were written while I was sadly sober. This is hell, and I know you have Hefe on the line. What? Dara Horn's Trojan Complaint and My In-Kind Prose Donation. A fellow Jew shared an article published in The Atlantic called Why the Most Educated People in America Fall for Anti-Semitic Lies, subtitled At Harvard and Elsewhere, An Old Falsehood is Capturing New Minds, by Dara Horn. The article reports on anti-Semitic rhetoric intimidation, mob mentality, and violence on college campuses and elsewhere, and expands its purview to intellectual anti-Semitism throughout the ages in the West. It makes a good case for being extremely outraged at the hatred of Jews that is tolerated in contemporary society. Let me assure you, there is a story to report here, but Horn is not the person to report it. To be fair, unlike Horn... She makes some good points about diversity, equity, and inclusion doctrines as they relate or fail to relate to the Jewish situation. The problems with identity politics she briefly flogs with her insult stick are even now being explored by broader minds, including Jews of color and diverse class and gender identification. On campuses around the country, she writes, students began gathering regularly to chant, there is only one solution, Intifada Revolution, a reference to a suicide bombing campaign in Israel a generation ago that maimed and murdered well over 1,000 Jews. If there is only one solution, she parenthetically adds, perhaps one could call it the final solution. Holy crap, Dara Horn! It sounds like you're calling Intifada a Nazi thing. But putting Palestinians in ghettos and trying to bomb them into extinction or exile is not? Throughout the article, Horn makes similarly debatable statements and leaves them unexamined, one-sided evaluations of events, self-serving definitions of terms such as genocide, 
dubious equations between actions and thoughts. It's a one-woman circle jerk, a Portnoy's complaint, if you will. It's a balm to soothe the hawkish Jew's conscience and deserves an in-kind prose donation. There are shades of the thesis that Palestinians are only cosplaying as victims. In reality, she implies they are carrying on, in theatrical fashion, on the world stage, the millennia-old tradition of the blood libel, and everyone supporting Palestinians is falling for it, or worse, playing along and cheering. Attacks on Jews in the USA prove it. In positing the linkage, she bites off more than she can chew, and certainly more than the reader can swallow. The overall thrust of the article is that hatred of Jews is so embedded in global culture and intellectualism that the world is egregiously slanted against us. Even Caligula was unfair to us. Imagine! Caligula! Such an argument has undeniable merit, and that any so-called criticism of Israel must be viewed in the context of that slant requires exploration, but this is not that. She attenuates her premise in dubious ways. She gives one example of an exposed Hamas lie and tacitly allows her mistrust to taint all news of Israel's mistreatment of Palestinians, even while paying vacuous lip service to legitimate concerns. We are meant to ask, how can we believe that 11,500 Palestinian children have been killed to date in the current Israeli bombardment? How are we to believe that 1.7 million civilians, if such a term can even apply to Palestinians, have been displaced? How are we to look at an ad from Médecins Sans Frontières about Gaza requiring their aid and not consider Doctors Without Borders a Jew-hating organization? or at best, that, despite its work on the ground in Chad, Sudan, Yemen, and elsewhere, its pleas for aid in Gaza are based on its gullibly swallowing Hamas's lies. I don't know, Darahorn. I received a video from a friend showing Palestinian kids ripping holes in one friend's shirt and dirtying him up to make him look like he'd been the victim of Israeli bombing. The caption on the video said, jocularly, he deserves an Oscar. Nevertheless, call me an anti-Semitic Jew, but I have a hard time believing that 11,500 Palestinian children are only pretending to be dead. For every example in Horn's gish gallop of anti-Semitic violence and rhetoric, there are, plausibly, an equal number of outraging domestic anti-Arab and anti-Muslim acts, violence, and rhetoric that could be blamed on the current climate, so I won't list them tit for tat here. A good faith effort by the reader will turn them up easily. Horn reveals the core endeavor of her Atlantic piece in a paragraph beginning bitterly with, Criticism of Israel is not anti-Semitic. Jews are now required to recite this humiliatingly obvious sentence over and over as the price of admission to public discourse about their own demonization in debates with people who are often unable to name the relevant river or sea. That's the instant historian smear. The people against the occupation and genocide are ignorant. They don't even know what river or sea their chants are about. Now, to be fair, many of the millions protesting are ignorant and guilty of being both instant historians and of harassing Jews. But Horn isn't talking about just many of them or even most of them. In her de rigueur mentions of 
the many legitimate concerns about Israel's policies toward Palestinians and the many legitimate concerns about Israel's current war in Gaza. She elides what exactly those legitimate concerns might be. What concerns would Horn consider legitimate? She doesn't say but the lacuna is suggestive, to say the least. Whatever the legitimate concerns are, they cannot explain those eliminationist chants and slogans, the glee with which they are delivered, the lawlessness that has accompanied them, or the open assaults on Jews. I'd say the assaults are covered under the lawlessness, but make your list longer if you must. The timing alone laid the game bare. This mass exhilaration first emerged not in response to Israel's war to take down Hamas and rescue its kidnapped citizens, but exactly in response to, and explicitly in support of, the most lethal and sadistic barbarity against Jews since the Holocaust, complete with rape and decapitation and the abduction of infants, committed by a regime that aims to eviscerate not only Jews, but all hopes of Palestinian flourishing, coexistence, or peace. Let's be clear. Hamas's depraved violence on October 7th is utterly indefensible. Those urging a ceasefire are required to recite this humiliatingly obvious sentence over and over as the price of admission to public discourse about our own demonization, to paraphrase one Dara Horn. The timing alone laid the game bare. And really, why would someone jump to the defense of Gazans so soon after the news of the October 7th massacre broke? Speaking for myself and multitudes of occupation watchers, we've seen what Israel has done in the past, with or without provocation. The incursion into Jenin was the first such action I wrote about for This Is Hell, the failure of the Jews, 2002. But of course... There are other examples. Just in the past few years, the IDF and Israeli cops have harassed, evicted, and tear-gassed both Palestinians and their own citizen protesters, and reprisals for resistance to illegal settlements, IDF-supported settler violence, and even violent responses by Israeli authorities to peaceful demonstrations have been legitimately concerning to the aware observer. And I Jesus Christ, Dara Horn, many of us lived through the insanely violent aftermath of 9-11. How quickly we forget, huh? Maybe you're too young and ignorant. Do you comprehend that many of us recognized immediately that the October 7th attack was for Israel comparable to 9-11? So of course I feared the worst kind of Israeli revenge bombing when the news of the massacre broke, and that is why I urged everyone concerned not to react as if all Palestinians were animals, a humiliatingly obvious statement for which I received abusive messages and threats. Two days later, Israel's defense minister, Yoav Gallant, announced, We are fighting human animals and we are acting accordingly, while ordering a complete siege of Gaza, which is now still grinding toward its parabolically approached completion. No, the timing does not lay the game bare. On the contrary, the assertion that it does lays Horn's game bare. Her mission is to paint the massive protests against the continued destruction of Gaza as solely explicable by ignorance 
and anti-Semitism. There can be no theoretically legitimate concerns of which she so charitably entertains the existence. Therefore, all protest against Israel's military response to the October 7th massacre must be cheerleading for Hamas. Now, now, the statement, criticism of Israel is not anti-Semitic, is humiliatingly obvious. Yet Dara Horn seems unable to refrain from humiliating herself by so obviously conflating the two. This has been the moment of truth. Good day! Oh, man, that was fantastic. Have we, because uh, I know that your uh, Moments of Truth from 2002 are not at our website right now. Have we shared uh, your 2002, The Failure of the Jews, uh, Moment of Truth? You know what? Uh, I'm, I, I'm sh- I, I used to have it on my little uh, Moment of Truth uh-huh. uh, website uh, that, sadly, late Michael Barish uh had to uh, release because of uh, not being able to pay the uh, fees you know, and whatever his, well. his what what's it, the domain fee or yeah, something yeah. like that. Um, but I have it. I have it somewhere on an old hard drive if I have to put it up somewhere. No, because yeah. I know that we have it on a hard drive. I'm just saying because I would love to share it on Patreon. <laughs> you have my permission. <laughs> All right, cool. Just making sure it's your it's your I'd content, like- my friend. Well, I'd like to share the text, too, which you probably don't have on a hard drive. I definitely do not. So I tell you what, I will contact you uh, later on today, and we'll see if we can work that out for uh, this Friday's uh, Patreon. Oh, oh, okay. Um, There's something else, though. Maybe I should re-record it. Um, There's something else. uh, You know, tomorrow I'm leaving for Detroit early in the morning. So it might be hard for me to search through hard drives. Uh, well, then. we'll work it out because we're not going to be posting. We'll work it out. Don't worry. And so okay. uh, what are you doing in Detroit? I'm taking care of my sister. Uh, she's going to have back surgery in a week. So I'm going to help her set up her place for her recovery. And then I'm going to stay there for, you know, for her recovery. And then I'm going to come to Chicago. Wow. And, well, I hope and, you- uh, and what? Uh, the best to your sister and looking forward to seeing yeah. you and uh, enjoy your time in Detroit. Well, I will. I'm looking forward to a bunch of restaurants that have been recommended to me. It's like crazy the amount of Asian and Yemeni restaurants I'm learning about. And a Chinese market right near my parents' house. There's a great uh, Palestinian pizza place in Hamtramck that I really want to go to. I've heard all about it. Anyway, so uh, I'll talk to you soon. Looking Cut. forward to seeing there's you. No such, there's no such thing as Palestinians. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but there are such things as ham tram ham tramickers, ham tramickers. I don't know. All right, oh, Jeffy. Ham un- traffickers. Until next time. Wait, are they ham traffickers? I don't know. It's disgusting. <laughs> until next time. What? Stay beautiful. <laughs> All right. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi, the Ojibwe, the Ottawa, the Miami, the Ho Chunk, the Menominee. The Sack and Fox Peoples. This is Hell. Rebecca, please remind us what is this week's question from Hell and give us some more of our, the answers that we're getting from listeners. Yeah, so this week's question from Hell is what are you bringing to this Hell's bake sale? And our 
on our Facebook group, uh, Pete V says gorilla cookies. <laughs> okay. That got a like. Okay. Uh, uh, Sarav S says communist literature. <laughs> Ronaldo M says the crunchy bread I somehow learned to uh, learn how to make during the pandemic. <laughs> Don't say I didn't warn you. Okay. And uh, Krimsky K says money. Am I right? <laughs> and Nick E says gorilla cookies with cheese. <laughs> And Thomas K says angel food cake now with real angels and our secret blend of 11 herbs and spices. It's finger licking good. Gross. And Neil C says humble pie. <laughs> I like that one. That's a good one. What the hell is a gorilla cookie? I don't know. I think it's like everything, everything involved. Okay. Like in the kitchen sink. All right. You know. I got to look it up. <laughs> so we hope to see you all throughout the rest of the winter for This Is How Office Hours, our meet and greet that's really a drink and think, no matter the weather. Office hours are held every Wednesday beginning at 6 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood, the bar downstairs from where I'm sitting right now. The show you are currently listening to streams live on Wednesday, which means this evening is office hours. And the current weather forecast is it's not going to be wintry at all. In fact, it's going to be frighteningly spring-like with temperatures hitting 60 degrees when the historic average is only a high of 37. So tonight you will definitely find me out back in the beer garden around the fire pit. That's This Is Hell office hours, which happen every Wednesday evening, beginning at around 6 p.m. at... Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood. Thanks to Becca Ridenauer for producing today's show. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. This is hell, where, oddly, we make learning about evil fun. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down, and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell, and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>